We spent quite a few weeks in the summer talking about love. And we're not going to rehash that and go all over it. But if you'll remember, we focused on 1 Corinthians 13. And I will give you just a, a general reminder of what that said. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is a biblical picture of love that comes straight out of the heart of God himself. But when we talked about love, I hope we didn't do it then and we certainly aren't going to do it now. Love is something that's more than just a philosophical concept. It's not just something that is fitting for a theological discussion. Love to be biblical love needs to be put into action. In high school, and I can remember a few things I learned from high school, maybe some of you can too, but I do remember in high school learning the difference between potential energy and kinetic energy. Maybe you can remember this. Potential energy is that energy that is stored but hasn't been released. And probably the best image, the image that I remember from high school, is the image of an archer who pulls back an arrow. The tension on that bowstring being ready to be released into that arrow to send it flying. When that bowstring is pulled back, that is potential energy. It's energy that has been stored ready to release. Kinetic energy, on the other hand, is energy in motion. When that bowstring is released, kinetic energy happens. It moves forward and thrusts that arrow into the air. That is the extent of what I remember from physics in high school. The point of it is this. Within the body of Christ, within this body of Christ, there is a tremendous amount a potential stored energy ready to be released. And as we come to understand the infinite love of God for us, and we understand God's call on us to love like this, then what it will be is an unleashing of the bowstring, an unleashing of the potential energy that is stored within this body to do great work in our community and in our world. For love to be biblical, the bowstring must be released. And when that happens, it's no longer love in theory. It's love in practice. And so I want to begin this morning by giving you my premise for the whole thing. And I do this for two reasons. Number one, I want to make sure you get it. And number two, I want to make sure you get it in case you fall asleep. And so here's the premise for the entire message right here. The biblical motivation for serving others is not obligation. It's love. The biblical motivation is not obligation. It's love. If you were here last week, uh, then we spent some time looking at Jesus' humble act of washing the feet of his disciples just prior to that last supper he had with them. And we considered the mystery of the Prince of Peace 
the prince of heaven, God in the flesh, lowering himself to perform an act so humble that none of the other disciples said, hey, I'll take care of that. The lowliest act that could be performed during that meal was the very act that Jesus himself did. And we know that one of the reasons Jesus did this, because he tells us, is as an example. He did it to show us how we could respond to others in service. But he also did it for another reason. And if you'll remember, John 13, verse 1, gives us that reason. said that. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to his Father. Now look at this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Imagine that. I have read over that literally hundreds of times. And yet as I reread it in the last few weeks, it became abundantly clear just before Jesus gets up takes his outer garment off, wraps a towel around himself, gets the basin and begins to wash his disciples' feet. What is it? What does John tell us he was doing? He was showing his disciples the full extent of their love. Now, they knew that he loved them. They knew that he cared about them. But Jesus was showing them the full extent of his love. Now, obviously, we know that the fullest and greatest extent was when he hung himself He allowed himself to be hung on the cross. We know that that was the fullest expression of his love for humanity. And yet part of it was also in washing his disciples' feet. If you'll remember, we read this last week in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I am here not to be served by you, though I deserve it. I deserve to sit on the throne and have you come and wait on me hand and foot. But I did not come to be served. I came to serve. And and that service is going to lead to the cross, to giving up my life. Serving by laying down his life as a ransom for many. But you know that also, also that service included a towel and a basin. And dirty feet. It's important for us to recognize that acts of Christian service, both great and small, have at their core a heart of love. And this is important because many of us are storing up our potential energy for something great. We're, we're looking at for something big. Going on a particular mission trip. Being able to save up and make a big contribution for a particular ministry. Oh, I'm looking forward to that day when I can retire. When I retire, then I want to do A, B, C, and D for the Lord. Or I hear this one all the time. Pastor, if I ever win the lottery. 
And you can fill in the blank, you know, pay off the church debt, you know, whatever. It's this, it's this concept of this stored up energy. If I ever get to that point, then I'll let the bowstring go. But what we see here in Jesus is not only a great act of service in the cross, but a humble, small, mundane act of service in kneeling to wash his disciples' feet. Acts both great and small come from the same heart, motivated by the same heart of love. And so this morning, as we consider serving out of that heart of love, I'd like us to look at a story that Jesus told. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to open to Luke chapter 10, Luke's gospel, the 10th chapter. And there we're going to look at a very familiar story and one that perhaps you've read over a hundred times or more. Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin with verse 25. Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. And this is what we read. Let's first begin by reading through verse 29. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, before we get into the story that Jesus tells in response to that particular question, let's figure out what's going on here. You have an expert in the law coming to talk to Jesus. An expert in the law, um, we, this would be someone who knew the Jewish law All 613 separate Jewish laws who knew them intimately, who knew the the writings in the Old Testament really, really well, would have memorized so much of it. He would be the person to whom others would come with theological questions. He'd be the person that the, the priest would come to when they had theological questions. He'd be the guy who would be considered the professor. He'd be at the head of the class. He was the, he was the answer man. When it came to Bible knowledge, he was the guy. And so he comes to Jesus, and it says to test him. Now, when we think of tests, because we've lived all our lives going to school, when we think of tests, we, you know, we get just bad, bad, bad things, bad tests. I, I, was, I was in school for so long, it seemed. I went, you know, certainly I went all the way through 12 years, took me five years to get out of college. And then I went another three years to seminary. And I'm telling you, it was months after I finally got out of seminary, I would wake up in the mornings in a panic thinking, I've got a test today. It leaves a mark, all these tests that we take. And so we've got kind of this negative connotation to test. That may not have been what was going on here. For you see, among the Jewish elite, the intellectuals, there was a debate as to which of the laws was most important. I mean, you've got 613 of them. Can you imagine 613 laws that you've got to think about all day long? 
Okay, don't want to do this, don't want to do this, don't want to do that. And especially on the Sabbath, because then they like all come into play. And so you've got all these laws, you're trying to juggle all this stuff and trying to figure out what's the most important law. I mean, literally, what's it going to take for me to get, to get eternal life, to get to heaven? That's what I want to know. Kind of, let's bring it all down to where the rubber meets the road. What's it going to take for me to get to heaven? And so Jesus said, you're the expert. What do you think? How do you, how do you read this? And then he comes up with an answer. It's a good one. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if he came up with that on his own, bingo. Man, he, he, hit, he hit the grand slam right there. I don't think he did. This is, this is personal opinion. This is using sanctified imagination. I think he heard Jesus say this before. I think he heard Jesus say it. That doesn't really matter. He got the right answer. And so, Jesus says, okay, you got it. Do it, and you'll live. In other words, you came up, you asked me a question, you've already got the answer. Do it. Follow through with it. Here's where the story gets interesting. Because the man realizes there's something missing here. He may have felt pretty secure in loving God with all his being. But this loving your neighbor kind of thing was the fly in the ointment. It was the real problem for him. And so he asks the question, well, Jesus, who's my neighbor? This is what he and his buddies had been talking about. They'd been going round and round and round about this. Yes, we think we've got the answer here. Maybe we heard Jesus say it. Maybe we came up with it on our our little, you know, with a a cup of coffee just sitting around a, a table somewhere. To love God with all your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds really good. We think we've got it. But where do you draw the line? Folks, as a pastor, I have experienced this in many ways. Where people have asked, without using these exact words, what's the bare minimum I have to do? I mean, seriously, if I'm going to get to heaven, what's the least I have to do? If I'm going to be a member of your church, what's the least I have to do? I mean, come on. Let's get real. And that's exactly what he was asking. Where do I draw the line. Now, before I come down on him too hard, Peter did the same thing. Peter came to Jesus and said, uh, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Obviously, something had happened. How many times do I have to forgive my brother? Up to seven times. Now, Peter was being generous. Jewish law had said three. Jesus blew him out of the water. He said, not seven, but 70 times seven. And he didn't mean 490. He meant you keep on forgiving him if he comes and genuinely seeks forgiveness. You keep on forgiving him. You keep on forgiving him. You keep on forgiving him. But Peter wanted to know exactly what this guy is. Where do you draw the line? And in this guy's idea, where do I draw the line with my neighbor? You see, it's easy to love people who love me back. Well, sometimes. It's easy to love people who are like me. Same skin color, 
You know, people who bathe on a regular basis like I do. People who float in the same social circles that I do. People who like the same football team that I do. It's easy to love those people. But God, you've got to understand, this person I work with, my neighbor, pulls for Georgia Tech. Or even worse, from my perspective, during basketball season, they pull for Duke. Ooh. Got to love your name. Where do you draw the line? That's, that's the question he's asking. And in response to that, Jesus tells a story. And we have that story recorded right here. We'll start reading in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and when the man and put him put the man on his own donkey, he took him to an inn and he took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Stories are not as big a part of our society as they were in Jesus' time. Jesus was around before television, before internet, before smartphones, even before radio. In that time, most of the people were illiterate anyway, and so being around before the printing press was not such a big deal. People communicated truth, history, through stories. They told stories. So Jesus is fitting in with the, the culture of that time by telling them a story in order to communicate truth. And the people would be immediately engaged because their antenna are up for stories. Tell me a story. And so Jesus began to tell this story. And he would have gotten their attention immediately because he starts with this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now to us, that's just a boring fact. Okay, you're just telling the direction the man's going from one place to another. But to say a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho meant a lot of things. First of all, it meant he was going 16 miles and he wasn't going in a truck. He was either going on foot or he was going on a donkey, 16 miles. That's a little bit further. I mean, it's, it's I won't say nothing, but the price of gas is something now. But it's not much for us to run to Madison and back. If we've got to go to Walmart... We, we go to Madison and back. Or depending on where we end up going, you know, you can go, depends on where you live. You may go to Eatonton and back. We, we don't think too much about it because we have the benefit of transportation. But when you've got to go on foot, it makes a huge difference. 
And so this man's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, but that's not the exciting part of the story. You see, not only is it a fairly good distance to travel on foot or on donkey, but the road starts in Jerusalem at about 2,500 feet above sea level and goes to Jericho, which is about 800 feet below sea level. And so he's not traveling on level ground. He's constantly having to to go downhill in order to get there. Now, going downhill may be better than going uphill, but it's still not very easy, especially when you're considering the roads aren't paved like our roads are. They're basically rutted out dirt roads. And so this is where the man's going. You say, okay, well, it's, that's still, it's, not so, it's still not such a big deal. He's just going from, from Jerusalem down to Jericho, except they knew one thing that we don't know. That was a dangerous place for one person to be going by themselves. You didn't do that. You won't travel by yourself, especially not on that road. If you were a merchant, everyday citizen, you didn't want to go that way. And so when Jesus said that this person was going on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, the people be on the edge of their seats because if you've ever watched one of those movies and the dramatic movie music starts, you know something is about to happen. Don't, don't you just love it? There's a crazed killer on the loose. And so you've got these, this group of people and they're together and they're safe in, in this room, in this house, wherever they might be. They're safe. The music's going, though. And then one of them says, I think I hear something outside. Let me go check. What a moron. There's a crazed killer on the loose. Let me go check. He ain't coming back. If you haven't seen the movie, I'll just tell you, he's not coming back. Okay, when Jesus started his story, a man was going on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was like the music in Jaws was starting. They knew something was going to happen, and it wasn't going to be good, and they were right. Jesus doesn't leave. It's not like a cliffhanger, and come back next week, and I'll tell you what happened. No, it's not like that. Jesus went on this story, and he tells them immediately, that this man's going on this road, and he's mugged. He's robbed, he's beaten up, he's stripped of his clothing, and he's left there half dead and naked on the side of the road. So the story is not, not a real good thing, but there's help on the way. Because then Jesus says, and along comes a priest. Now a priest in that area, era would be kind of like a preacher is now. He was a person who kind of was the, the, the person who represented God to the people, and when people had issues, they went to their priests like they come to their preacher. And so he was kind of the preacher of their day. So here comes the hero. The priest is coming down the road. Here's a man who's been beaten up, left on the side of the road, half dead, naked. Surely the priest is going to go over, pick him up, pray for him, try to help him. But no, that's not what happens. It says he passed by on the other side. In other words, here's the guy, and the priest is coming down the road, and he sees him, and he goes to the other side of the road as far away from this man as he can get. So he's not the hero in the story. And along comes a Levite. Now, who's a Levite? He's obviously from the tribe of Levi. They were the people who served in the temple. They had a very special role, and there were so many of them by this point that they actually drew lots to discover who would serve in the temple. 
because you didn't get to do it every week. It may have been a once in a lifetime event. And so here's this man, this Levite, he's coming along and he sees him. Now this man, this man lives to be in the presence of God. And yet when he sees him, he does the same thing. He goes all the way, passes by on the other side of the road. So now we have two would-be heroes who come along, who are righteous, who are holy guys. They see someone in need, and they pass him by. And then Jesus throws in the left hook, completely out of nowhere, right on the jaw of this expert on the law and everybody who was there in the crowd. Because along comes a Samaritan. Along comes a Samaritan. Now we have good thoughts about Samaritan. We've heard about the good Samaritan all of our lives. When we give to the shoebox ministry, it's Samaritan's Purse. The ministry that some of you have been connected with in Zambia is Global Samaritan. Samaritans has a good connotation for us, but not for them. Samaritans were like Duke fans. No, I'm just kidding. They weren't that bad. They weren't that bad. No. Samaritans, Samaritans were not just disliked by Jews. They were despised by Jews. They didn't associate with them. They didn't eat with them. They didn't want to be around them. These people were unclean. They were, you you just didn't, you did not associate with Samaritans. And so who does Jesus make the hero of the story, but a despised half-breed Samaritan? So he's the hero. And what does he do? He stops and he not only checks on the guy, checks his pulse, he cleans up his wounds, puts oil and wine on them. Wine's a cleansing agent with the alcohol. The oil is is for the healing agent. Puts the man on his own donkey. So now he was riding, but he's not riding anymore. And he takes the man to an inn, gives the, man, gives the innkeeper two silver coins, which is no, you know, it's not like giving him a couple of bucks. This is pretty good money. He says, take care of him. Now I'm going to go do my business. And when I come back, I'm going to stop back. And if anything else is owed, I'll pay for it. So not only is this Samaritan, the hero in the story, he is a big time Hero. He saw the need. He met the need, even though it was costly to him. Now, Jesus, after he tells this story, he turns to the expert in the law and he says, Now, which of these three do you think was neighbor? You want to talk about neighbors? Which of these three was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law is standing there and he's trapped. What's he going to do? Run? No, he's the expert. His reputation is on the line. Who's going to come to him with big theological questions if he can't answer this simple child's question? Who was it? But he's going to answer it. But he's not going to use the word Samaritan. That word's not coming out of his mouth. And so instead, his answer is, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And so Jesus, and I can imagine with a smile of satisfaction on his face, says, go and do likewise. Do like the Samaritan. And the guy, you can imagine, just slinks 
away. He came perhaps to just test Jesus or perhaps to put him down. But instead, Jesus has given him a definition of what it means to love your neighbor that he's not really comfortable with. Go and do likewise. That's a great story about serving, getting us out of our comfort zone. And there have been lots, lots of sermons on this particular passage of Scripture. But I want you to notice something that was a little earlier in the story where, where Jesus introduces a Samaritan. He says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, again, here in America, when we hear the word pity, is something we, we rail against. Do not pity me. I don't need your pity. Pity, we think, is when I am superior and you are inferior and I kind of pat you on the head or pat you on the back or, or you know, throw you a bone. Pity, I, I don't want your pity. But pity here, this word does not mean that. As a matter of fact, the, the word pity means to be moved in the bowels. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, that's not it. No, to be moved, it basically, have you ever loved someone so deeply that you could feel it deep down within? Now that sounds so much better, doesn't it? But that's what it's talking about. He had compassion on him. He had a love that came from deep within him, that stirred him. When he saw this man's need, the love in him stirred him so that potential energy became kinetic energy. Potential love became practical love. And it engaged this need. Who was a neighbor? It was a Samaritan. The one who showed mercy. Those who passed by were religious. They had credentials. They had more biblical knowledge. They probably never missed a Sabbath day worship. They, like some of you, were on the cradle roll. The, 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 right after they were born, you know, their parents carted them off to synagogue with them. They just never missed a Sabbath. And when they passed by, they may have even had sympathy on the man. But they didn't stop. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us why they didn't stop, and they may have had good reasons for not stopping, and I could go into those possible reasons why they didn't stop, especially with the Levite, because you've got to think about the Levite. If he were on his way to Jerusalem to serve in the temple, perhaps his one and only time in his life, this is the only time he's going to get the opportunity to serve in the temple And if he stops and touches a man who turns out to be dead, according to Jewish law, he'd be declared unclean. He'd have to go through a whole series of rituals to get himself ceremonially clean again, and he would miss entirely his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to serve in the temple. So it would have been costly for him to stop if the guy had been dead. Of course, the guy wasn't. And therefore, he turns out to be the goat in the story, not the hero. 
As we continue on this I Serve series, we need to ask ourselves some tough questions. And one of those questions is this. Are we content with being busy and being religious? Or are we committed to live out our faith by expressing God's love to the world in our service? Are we content with being religious and showing up on Sundays and putting money in the offering plate and singing the right songs and standing at the right times and sitting at the right times and wearing the right clothes and being around the right people and being in a grace group and being in Sunday morning? Are we content with doing that? Or are we going to take the potential energy that is within us, the potential love that is in us, and let go of the bowstring, unleash that love, and unleash that energy into our community, just like the Samaritan did? Or are we going to be satisfied to be more like, as we go along this road of life, to be more like the priest and the Levite than the Samaritan? It's part of God's call to Abraham. If we go way back, he told Abraham that, he was not only going to bless him. Look at look what he says. In Genesis 12, 2, I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. The old line from the Spider-Man comic book, with great power comes great responsibility. If God rewrote it, it would be with great blessing. Comes great responsibility. I will bless you. And you'll be a blessing. Part of being blessed is that we are a blessing. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, God reminds the righteous that serving others in Jesus' name is the same as serving Jesus himself. In Matthew 25, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. The Apostle Paul encourages to to do what we do as if we're doing it for Jesus himself. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if you're working for the Lord and not for men. And to make it just a little bit sweeter, Jesus promises there's a reward in serving him. In Mark 9, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of cold water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. There's reward that comes with it. Now, don't ask me about all the heavenly rewards. I don't know about all those. It's great. Let's store them up. But I do know this. And any of you who have spent time serving know that there is a reward that is utterly intangible that comes from serving other people. To know that you're doing something that makes a difference in the life of someone, to know that you're doing something that brings joy to the heart of God, in, in that is reward enough. So what can we conclude from all this? Because you're all asking, Jimmy, please conclude. So let me wrap it up. A couple of scriptures. First of all, Romans thirteen eight, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law think about this for the follower of jesus christ love is not optional it's essential serving is not optional it's essential what the man asks is jesus what's the limit 
I've got 613 laws that I've got to think about all day long, juggling them in my mind, trying to be careful, walking this tightrope so that I don't fall off. And then we read something like this. You have a, you have a debt to love other people. But when you do that, you fulfill the law. And then 1 John 3, 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. For the follower of Jesus, love leads to humble service. And it shows God's love to the world. And next week, we're going to pick up from here and we're going to look at how, how serving others becomes a bridge-building exercise. That there will be people who, who will hear the gospel because they have been the beneficiaries or the witnesses of acts of Christian service. But for today, I want us to leave here convinced that serving others is a supernatural result of loving others. As we heard Jesus say last week, I've set, I've set you an example that you should do as I've done. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them.